0: My guest today has an extraordinary story. Having decided that life in a seminary was not for him, he joined the Hong Kong Police Force as a senior inspector. And because life as a senior police inspector in Hong Kong isn't challenging enough, he decides to open his own art gallery. And in a mad dash to beat the forecasted Armageddon Armageddon that was the millennium bug, he returned to Ireland at the turn of the century, where he took up a role as marketing director for Alexander Dunlop. In 2002, he found his spiritual home building brands and corporate storytelling whilst working at brand agency Creative Inputs, and it came as no surprise to those of us who knew him back then that he would go on to found his own brand agency Island Bridge in 2004. He has a master's degree in th- philosophy and a second master's in social science, specializing in criminology. He has served as News Talk Radio's Kickstart Your Business Brand expert and ongoing mentor to Enterprise Ireland's high potential startups and to Dublin City University's Startup Incubation clients. His professional raison d'etre in life is helping his clients become the natural choice for their customers. Gerard Tannum, you're very welcome
1: to the podcast. Thanks very much, Paul. I'm exhausted just listening to you there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've lived it. I guess you've had probably a few more years to recover from it, but uh, I want to go back a few years, Jared, if you don't mind. Um, you you grew up in Dublin. You went to school in in
1: was it CBS school? Yeah, it was Trimley Castle on the yeah. Longwhile Road there.
0: Tell me a little bit about what your growing up in Dublin was like back then, because for some of our listeners, you know, we're we're, we're going back to another
1: century. Exactly. Um, and of course, I mean, much of it is still very recognizable, but it, it was with, with, with in retrospect, it, it feels like a much kind of a grayer place. And, and in many respects, uh, I'm not so sure it was kind of at street level, but we certainly grew up in, in an environment where uh, our kind of self-confidence uh, as as a country, principally, but also, you know, as as a city, as as a locality. I mean, my, I I grew up in Crumlin, went to school in Drimna. Um so self confidence wasn't great, and, and 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 to a large extent, um, I, I, when when I look back, I I, I kind of see it as as quite a grey a grey period. And so not for me personally, because you know, I I, I had a fairly kind of an unremarkable. Uh, early life uh, and and there was lots going on in it and like most kids of that age i spent most of my time out playing in the street and uh and 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 playing sports and 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 of course that's as colorful as you as you like but 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 yeah when i I look back and and kind of right up to the point where i left dublin because uh, i graduated in 1988 and it was pretty much the lowest point (laughs) economically and socially and a whole lot of other things, you know, for, for, for Ireland, oh, it was really yeah. a low point, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I'm not suggesting I, I, I kind of flew into technicolor <laughs> over in, in Asia, but, but certainly like I bounced off the plane in Asia, in Hong Kong, the heat hit me and just the energy hit me. And it suddenly felt like an environment where everything was possible, whereas Growing up in, 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 in Ireland, I think it's fair to say, it felt like everything was impossible. You know, people yeah, were quick to yeah. tell you why you couldn't do something rather than why you could. So that, that's cool. really my, my kind of recollection cool. of it. Yeah.
0: yeah. That was around the time of the Boomtown Rats Banana Republic. Yeah. Know, at, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. might be you might be uh, underserving yourself a little bit when you said, you know, I just play football in the streets. Did I read somewhere that you were on an All-Ireland winning soccer
1: team. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dreamland Castle. We were blessed at the time we had a um a, a kind of a, a great cohort. I, I was a a the 11th or 12th man um, back in the days when uh, when there was maybe only one or two substitutes <laughs> uh on, on any team. Um so yeah. I was kind of in and out of the team, but I was uh, I was I was fortunate I came through with um with I suppose most notably Niall Quinn. Uh Niall, Niall was our uh our, our, our star man, but there were a number of others uh, in, in, in the team as well. Karen Walsh, who went on to play uh, fullback for Dublin uh, in the 95 uh, uh, Gaelic football All-Ireland winning team. And, and a few others who went on to play League of Ireland um, mm. as well. So we had, a good, we had a good team and we had a great coach and uh yeah so and we won the we, we won the 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 all ireland for uh, for the school for the first time they went on and they won it again about 20 years later but mm. um and of course I, I, as i've said elsewhere <laughs> it's quite funny with the with the all ireland soccer um you know you know that, that that's a kind of a national competition um, played, oh. was participated in by kind of more schools than any other competition. And yet, um, a- alongside the, the, the Leinster schools or the Munster schools rugby, it's a, it, it's not a calling card. It's, a, you know, you, you talk to people yeah. who played on junior um, uh, provincial teams uh, in rugby, still dining out on it 30 years later. And yet, uh, the, 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 the All-Ireland soccer wasn't uh, yeah. wasn't a big deal at the time. So again, yeah. it, it, even looking back, it doesn't seem like such a remarkable achievement. Although I think yeah. kind of time has, uh, has changed well, that.
0: The, the funny thing is, when I saw that, that, I didn't even know such a thing existed.
1: Yes, well, I mean that's. I it. really didn't.
0: And when you when you associate all Ireland, it's typically the Gaelic sports, football exactly. and, and and hurling, or maybe uh, handball or, or, or dance. You know exactly. I, I I never associated with soccer. I, I didn't know it existed. Um, Come here, I'm fast because you said that uh, there was a massive difference between uh, that grey Ireland and then when you hit Hong Kong. But between that and Hong Kong, you had a couple of years. and, And I'm personally really intrigued by this to kind of understand what it was that led you to two years in All Hallows in a seminary, and then also two years in deciding this is not for me. Sure. I'm just curious to know what, what 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 you go through as an individual, because th- they're not easy decisions, I think, on, on either to enter or to leave. And, and I'm curious about that, and then we can go on to Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, I think the, the decision to enter was probably uh, an easier decision than the decision to leave in some ways. Uh, although I, am not sure there was as much kind of soul searching on either as you might imagine. In so as I suppose back then, uh, priesthood was a career path, um, and it was a kind of a career path alongside, you know, teaching or mm. banking or civil service, or so it, it, it wasn't a kind of, uh, an extraordinary thing to consider. Um, I mean I grew up in a in, in a household uh, in a family which wasn't especially religious I mean my parents Ooh. were practicing Catholics. we we we, we uh, went to, to to mass every every sunday we uh, said confession you know maybe four or five times a year so we we we, we were a, a kind of a, a reasonably devout family um Ooh. And, uh, and of course, I went to a Christian brother school and, and I had a good experience in the Christian brother school. So so many of the, the people I was coming across in, in those kind of early years who were associated with uh, Catholicism were, were generally good uh, role models. Um, mm. I wasn't an ardent um, uh, Catholic, but I was certainly a, a, a you know, I, 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 I believed and uh, mm. and to a large extent, I, I continue to believe in the kind of Christian or Catholic uh, view of things generally okay uh Ooh. obviously with, with or hopefully obviously with some exceptions in, in in a sense so for for me it was a, an opportunity to uh i suppose i was a, i was drawn to the idea of community i was drawn to the idea of being a leader in the community i suppose if you look back over my life um what 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 kind of characterizes this is 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 that i've always had a an instinct to kind of step forward and to uh, you know, position myself as, as, as a leader, um, not necessarily a big L leader, often a small L leader, but somebody, mm. and, I, and I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed the ritual, the roles that of, of, around uh, Catholicism, um, you know, much of the, the stories, the, the biblical stories, etc. Mm. they're great stories. So,
0: you were born for storytelling. Yeah, so,
1: exactly. So the, the, what's kind of not to like? Yeah. um and uh, and my 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 initial experiences I, because like all of these choices you kind of get an opportunity to to check it out so you know i went and i spent a a weekend in all hallows you know maybe three or four months before i i i, I my leaving cert and i met a number of other guys who were considering the priesthood And they were good guys. The the people I met were good guys. And one of the things that appealed to me in All Hallows, and again, it kind of comes back to, to, I suppose, some of my instincts early on was was that All Hallows uh, trains, or did at the time, trains priests for the uh, international um, uh, church, not the Irish church. So it's not surprising to me even looking back. I wasn't drawn towards Clonliffe and the Dublin diocese. I was immediately drawn towards the idea of serving somewhere else. Um, mm. you know, so I think I've always had a, 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 a yen to, to, go elsewhere. Um, you know, mm. maybe on that notion that the prophet isn't recognized in his own country, so I might have a better chance somewhere else. And, mm. uh, what appealed to me was that I had an opportunity to, to uh, to, uh, train for a, a, a an English diocese, uh, that had a mission in South America. So it, it kind of ticked a lot of those boxes. So that was really mm. the appeal of it. Um, I liked okay. the lifestyle you know i liked i liked what it promised that idea that uh, you'd be getting out and meeting people and playing a part in, in people's lives and where you had a, a, an obvious role
0: yeah yeah and it's it's interesting because you said that you were drawn to the fact it was international and back in the certainly the late 80s a lot of irish people including myself i went to england some would have gone to the states some to australia you weren't kidding. You landed in Hong Kong. Like yeah. that wasn't something that went through anybody's head no. back then. Curious to know again, why Hong Kong? And then also for people listening, if you're anything like me, is <clears throat> like there's a, there's, to me, at least in my head, there's a massive shift between a life in a seminary, for example, and hong kong police like those two just don't fit the same picture in my mind anyway so help me connect the dots between between that
1: yeah well again i suppose the the international uh, uh aspect of it or and kind of why hong kong again th- th- there was always an element of uh, i suppose of contrarian c- contrariness in my decision making in so far as i suppose at, at the time uh, I was finishing up in college and we were considering our options. Most of my classmates were considering the UK, London particularly. Some of them were considering the US and, and others looking even then at Australia and whatnot. What I happened to come across in the Irish Times, maybe February of 1988, an ad, a small little uh, you know, inconspicuous ad advertising for uh, inspectors of police in Hong Kong. And what immediately jumped out was is that you know first of all opportunity to, to learn a new language uh to to train and lead a group of of officers up to 36 officers in in a unit and uh, uh yeah and the opportunity to go to a part of the world i would never been so that immediately attracted my attention and um, that that notion of of uh of mm. going somewhere I, I've never been somebody, even when I, I mean, I worked in England and I worked in America as part of my J1 uh, in America. And even when I went to America, I didn't go to a kind of an Irish uh, enclave. I, I ended up working in upper New York state where I was the mm. only Irish man within 100 miles, you know, and I, or, or as far as I knew within 100 miles. I I met no other Irish people when I was working in in the States and most people went to places like Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod or, you know, you heard all of those places where they were surrounded by other Irish. I was hugely attracted to the idea of meeting other people and to a certain extent, making my own my own life, not, not having to rely on where I had come from or who I knew or, oh. or whatever. Now, I'm not so sure that was conscious. I don't think it was. Oh. But Ooh. So the attraction of going to, uh, to Hong Kong appealed. And I also, at that point, remember, in All Hallows, I'd, I'd studied alongside a number of English guys, uh, Scottish guys, Welsh guys. And I knew from my initial interviews with the, the Hong Kong police, which my first interview was in Dublin and then my second in London. And what I realized very quickly was that I was going to be working alongside people i liked a lot i mean i like i like uh, the english the, the, the welsh the scots i like the british people uh, as a, as a general rule it could often mm. be a, an unpopular point of view but i like mm. working alongside uh, 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 uh people from that part of the world mm. and mm. Uh, so i was looking forward to, 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 mm. to that in in, uh, in asia
0: yeah i'm wondering as well as if you think about it certainly back then and to some extent now but certainly back then uh, a life in the priesthood was one of respect. You got re- instant respect. Yes. If you're also in a senior uh, inspector in a police, yes. There's respect that comes with that. And I'm wondering if subconsciously there's something in that as well in terms of the kind of things that attract you, because I can certainly see it in your field right now. You are yep. an ex- respected authority on branding, and and there's that kind of theme. Uh, Coincidence, or is there something there?
1: No, I think there's something there. Funny enough, a a good number of years ago, I was a member of the uh, Dublin Chamber of Commerce. Um, Like many business owners, you you join a, a network of sorts. And and I I realized that I I wasn't kind of satisfied with being an ordinary member when they put out a a, a call for ambassadors, what they grandly called uh, ambassadors, namely people who would would greet newcomers to the various network events or whatever and represent the the, the chamber. I immediately put my hand up and uh, it, it, it was a kind of reminder to me that I've always valued uh, where the role is obvious I don't really like going into situations uh, or, I'm, I'm more comfortable now than I'm older but certainly when I was younger I like having a kind of a calling card I like to be able to say mm-hmm. I'm here because and also uh, you know I, I, I back, back in, in, in my not so much my school days my college days I was I performed in a band I was a singer songwriter in a band and I also like that that when you step up on stage nobody's mm-hmm. asking the question what's that guy doing there or what's he what's he about to do you know there's a there's a degree to which you know to to, to quote the the cliche you know this man needs no introduction and you typically don't because you have a badge or a a name tag or a title or a cap or something that says this guy's the inspector of police this guy's the priest this guy's the you know and here's what here's what you can expect him and funny enough that's played into a great deal of my work because one of the things I often impress on on my clients is, is that you need to be clear about what role you're playing and you need to make it clear to the person for whom you're going to play that role, what the role is. Because if people aren't clear about what your role is, they don't know what to ask you. They don't know what to uh, expect of you. So I think oh. I've always been inclined to, to that and and maybe it's down to the fact that you know I came from... From a background which, at the time, was quite unpromising. I mean, my school wasn't a calling card. Uh, in fact, it took me many, many years to meet somebody in business when I came back to Ireland uh, in ninety-eight. It took me many years to meet somebody in business who had gone to the same school as me. Um, hmm. You know, because it wasn't a calling card, like Blackrock mm. College or, you know, Rockwell or something. That's it wasn't. Nice. It wasn't a reference. Mm. That's really
0: interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the art gallery. From a business perspective, first of all, as in when you decided to, to set up an art gallery, was it that you just wanted your own business? Was, was that it? Or was it was it the art itself that drew you to it? Because you didn't have an art background, as in you didn't study no. it in college. Um, what, why an art gallery?
1: Well it's the kind of the, it's the happenstance uh, really that that uh, characterizes so much of, uh, of 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 what I did and, and kind of how I went at things. So um, went to Hong Kong working away in the uh, in, in, in the police, still going to mass on a Sunday and uh, joined the uh, the folk uh, uh, group in, in, in the uh, in, in the church who were all Chinese as it happened, uh, local Chinese and uh, so enjoy that every Sunday sang my heart out and through that got introduced into the Hong Kong folk society and because I'd sung with a band in Ireland I started to perform at the Hong Kong folk society who who in addition to having local concerts they also invited the likes of Dave Dannon from Ireland uh, uh Mary Black at one point uh, Dolores mm. Kane and various other people Ralph McTell from from uh, from from the UK the guy who wrote waltzing Matilda I can't think of his name off the top of my head but all of these characters performed at different points in Hong Kong so I got heavily involved in the performance set up a band I had a band called the Shadow Boxers, and we were performing and people started to reach out to me to help them organize their events they liked the way I organized my event and I found I was actually more comfortable in promoting other people's talents than I was in promoting my own again because to a large extent I didn't have to explain myself i had to explain somebody else and i discovered i had a bit of a talent for explaining what other people did more than i had for what i do you know um mm-hmm. and so that that led on to organizing music events festivals theater events and then a, a an artist, artist a guy called morris Quillinan who i met uh, in the summer of 92 when he heard what i was doing in hong kong said any chance you'd organize an exhibition for me in hong kong so again with the the innocence of of the ignorant i said why not so i went back to hong kong after the summer after my holidays and i put some feelers out spoke to a couple of people i knew who ran venues and got back to morris and said look let's run the let's run an exhibition for you here's how we'll do it and i ran it on a partnership basis i had no idea of the the system which galleries organize which tend to be really really uh tough in terms of the commission they charge they charge really high commissions as they probably have to do using their model but sure. in my model we did, i didn't have to charge uh, such a high commission so we actually entered into a partnership where we where we joint funded his trip to hong kong we joint funded the transport of his paintings and then we agreed i can't even remember what it is now we agreed what we decided was a fair exchange between the pair of us in terms of what we get oh. for each, each sale. And of course with beginners look, the, the exhibition sold out. So oh. Morris then got back onto some of his artist friends here in Ireland and said, there's a guy in Hong Kong who knows how to sell paintings. So I organized another couple of exhibitions and then some local Chinese artists got in touch and said, we really like your approach and style. It's not the traditional gallery approach. And uh, and we went on from there. So we were an itinerant gallery for a, a couple of years, and then they it, call that pop-ups now. By the that's way, that's it exactly. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And yeah. uh, then a, a a local entrepreneur there, a property entrepreneur, uh, a guy called Alan Zeman, who owned a number of restaurants in an area called Lankwai Fong, which is like a cross between mm. Temple Bar and Grafton Street. Alan approached us and said uh, he had an empty space that he had been planning to open a gallery, uh, sorry, a a restaurant in, but he thought it might suit a gallery better. Uh, So would we joint venture with him? So again, it was another partnership. And Alan told me, taught me lots about business. Um, You know, much of what I've kind of taken into uh, into Island Bridge, I learned with Alan. Uh, Like he was full of good ideas, full of Common sense, and he was a great man to to say, you know, you have to leave something else on the table for the other guy. If you're making a deal, it has to work for you both. So he would sit down and discuss with you, and he, and he was a great man too around contracts. He'd say, look, a contract isn't worth the paper it's written on. A contract's simply a photograph of what the two of you understood at the time. It's a reference, he said. But if you if you have to hold somebody else to a contract, it's not. It's, it's not worth anything because it's, it's broken down at that point. What you really want to be able to say is, look, given the circumstances at that time, given what we knew at the time, this is what we both believe to be fair. Now, if circumstances have changed, is that still fair? And if it's not fair, we need to work out something now that's fair. You know what I mean?
0: That's a really interesting way of looking at contracts. Because people yeah. look at them as their tablets written in stone. Yeah. Rather than look, these were the circumstances at the time, and if that has changed, then we should really change our our interpretation of this. Yes. Yeah. Rather than use it as a sledgehammer to beat people up with, despite yeah. the fact that no nobody wins when you get into that argy bargy around contracts anyway.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. and look, and and it it has struck me kind of in recent times where you hear of landlords being you know absolutely unyielding around rents. In, in for argument's sake the restaurant space and you kind of say what on earth are you thinking like wh- 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 what possesses you to take that line can you not see that your 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 tenant cannot re- re- meet that rent C- can you not sit down with them and work out a route to to uh, to to prosperity for you both you know so uh, Alan taught me a great deal and we set up the gallery, again, not on a traditional model. The model was one where we asked the each artist. So we, we ran exhibitions. Every two weeks, we changed exhibition. And that was, I mean, that was tough in terms of, of we, we, we were organizing up to 52, sorry, up to 26 exhibitions a year in our space. And that was a great space. But Each of our exhibitions we organized on a contract-by-contract basis with the artist. So we'd sit down with them and we'd say, what are you going to bring? What are we going to bring? And part of what they brought was a a small uh, rental fee. So we wanted to know that they had skin in the game. So they brought a small rental fee. And then we committed to promoting and, and presenting the exhibition. And then we also agreed on a split of proceeds. Like any small business, that's that's what we did. And that was hugely popular with artists because artists like to know that they, their contribution was recognized just as ours was. And again, we would sit down at the beginning, draw up a contract. And then at the end we'd review the contract and we would just say, did things work out as we expected them to work out? And if they did, we would then say, well, then let's stick to the contract. And if they didn't, we'd say, well, let's work out what's a fair, a fair result. So it was great. Yeah.
0: Talk to me then about, I want to go talk about branding. And what I'd like to do is expand the, the, the conversation and branding around other ideas. Like personal branding nowadays uh, is one of those concepts you hear so much about. I think we all get it in the corporate sense. At least we have an, an understanding. I don't think we, we really understand what's behind it. And But I want to, first of all, look at the journey from there into yes. brand direction and then maybe we'll open it up and talk a little bit more around branding in general and particularly sure. personal branding that could be of value to a lot of people listening to this
1: sure. sure yeah let's do that
0: yeah so let's start with the how did you get from that then <laughs> into where branding is that's what you want to do with the okay. rest of your life
1: well one, one of the things about uh, working in a in, in a physical space um is that you're, you're meeting uh, customers uh, day in and day out. You're actually meeting the people who are, are likely to, to, to buy from you uh, and in, in this case, uh, uh, to, to buy from the artist or to buy the artist's work. So I used to find myself standing every two weeks, I'd be standing in the, uh, the gallery space, LKF, the gallery space, and I'd be looking around at the walls and I'd be saying, okay, so now we've got to fill this space. We've got to fill the space with two things. We've got to fill the space with an artist and we've got to fill the space with buyers, with people who who love art. Um, And the art itself is obviously the product. But to a large extent, we've got to bring two people together. We've got to bring the guy who's produced this art and we've got to uh, bring the guy who's going to buy the art we got to think about what I increasingly started thinking about as The Space Between. When I'd been in college, I dated a, uh, a, a, a woman who was a, a, a theatre uh, director and producer. And she gave me a book, which I never read, but I thought it had a great title, called The Space Between. And uh, the, the space between presumably uh, described the, uh, the actor's space or the, the, the theatrical space. But I went on to think about it in the, in the commercial space. So I'd say, we have a space, we've got to fill it, and we've got to bring two people into that space. And I've got to be able to represent well both of those people, those two people. I've got to be able to say to the buyer, here's what the seller has to offer. And I've got to be able to say to the seller. Here's what the buyers got to offer. So that really kind of led me quite quickly on to a kind of common sense understanding of brands and how they work. That brands reflect that relationship between the person buying and the person selling. Now, I didn't articulate it like that back then. Uh, that came later. But to a large extent, what I found was is that All of the work i had been doing up to that point in in the arts kind of space, whether it was music, whether it was theater, whether it was festivals, poetry readings, whatever it might be, and then kind of uh, crucially art, you were having to kind of keep jumping back and forth across the shop counter uh, in order to see what's on one side and what's on the other. And again, that's a kind of an analogy which only came to me kind of many years later, I read a, a quote from a guy f- who was involved in setting up Sears Roebuck, the, the great American um, um, department store. And he said his dream was to be able to stand on both sides of the shop counter at the same time. And that's really what I was doing. Um, and and I found I had a talent for that, for translation, for moving back and forth from one side to the other and understanding what do you need to see? What do you need to hear? What do you need to say? You know, and and I suppose, stepping into that space that's really about communication and translation because you're always translating one worldview from another because Paul Lanigan's worldview is different from Gerard Tanem's so every time we communicate i got to work out how to say what I'm saying in a way that you can hear it in your way um, and and vice versa and if I'm I, I'm advising you to how to speak better to your customers or your listeners I'm I'm trying to understand what's what they're hearing and what they're seeing and trying to translate that for them. Paul, I can't hear you anymore. Sorry. sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you know what? I, I'm going to just edit this bit out in a moment because yes. I have one thing to do. There's some. I think I left the window open and there's some prick outside has just decided to start a chainsaw, and I turned off the mic so. I'd it wouldn't be yeah. <laughs> and i forgot to turn it back on so no i'm just going to make sure that windows closed, and then I'll come back and I'm, and I'm going to i want to talk to you about that space in between particularly where it comes to seller and buyer i want to yeah. you know th- that sales aspect and you'll know how to kind of translate that for branding i do want to go more into branding as well but okay it's the storytelling as well it's there's so much to talk about just hang on one
1: second though okay I, no worries
0: Yeah, it's my own fault. I, I uh, opened the door yesterday and I forgot to close it again. And uh,
1: I Look, it's, it's really difficult if you're not in an absolute studio. It's really difficult to get uh, studio uh,
0: Yeah, additions. and I have sound curtains over those doors yeah. but behind, I left the door open which is on a balcony <laughs> out to a field where, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so we'll just come back in on an edit point. I want to uh, explore with you, Jared, that, that space in between, particularly in the context of buyer and seller. And as you've now been in business for yourself, you've been selling your, 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 your own business. Talk to me about how that uh, applies, how it plays itself out in that space between buyer and seller and, and what's happening there. And then also part two of that, I guess, is how branding influences what goes on in that space.
1: Okay. Yeah, look, I guess in terms of the space between, what what, what we we know is that a, a, a transaction won't happen or an exchange won't happen, or certainly won't happen twice if both parties don't see value in it. So at the very heart of any bargain or deal is the notion that I have something to offer, we agree on its value, you agree that it it has that value for you and then we exchange. So in some respects, it's delightfully simple. We know, of course, it isn't as simple to to agree value, but to a large extent, the transaction isn't gonna happen unless we can agree value. Mm -hmm. So it becomes really important for us to understand, first of all, what I value, I think far too many sellers come to the table without knowing what they value. And, and, And I mean, they know what it'll cost they know what the prices that they're going to ask but actually what do i value and on the flip side on the other side of the counter far too many buyers come to the table without asking what they value so what what is it they actually value now the buyer tends to be a little bit more conscious of what they think they value than the seller very often but there's often confusion on both sides so for me the most important thing is that we're clear, both of us, before we come to any transaction, we're both clear about what value looks like for us, um, what a good deal looks like for us, uh, what a, a good transaction or exchange, and what we're valuing that isn't necessarily reflected in the financials, in the money, because we do value other things, you know? So sometimes, for example, I'll hear people talk about, you know, he or she is a good client because they refer me on to other clients. And I will say, have you ever put a value on that, an actual value? What? What? When you say they refer you on to other clients, are those other clients even more valuable? Perhaps. Or are they less valuable? Are, are those other clients, you know, repeat clients? All of those things. So it's really important for us to understand what that value is. And once we're clear about what we each value, now we can have a proper conversation. And I can say, well, I'm putting this cost or fee value on this because I believe this is what you value. And you can say, well, actually, I don't value that at all. So, you know, for, for example, I mean, you see it, for, for example, in the Ryanair model. And the Ryanair model is, is beautifully simple. What Ryanair have said for many years—they've changed their tune a little bit recently—but what they've said for many years is that we don't value service. We don't value offering the service. The aspect of service we value is getting you there cheaply, on time, and with the minimal amount of fuss. That's yeah. you know, not the minimal amount of comfort because that, that that comes as part of it. But that's what we value. And if you actually look at what Ryanair invests in. They invest in equipment which is safest, most efficient, etc. They they buy more new planes, or they we're buying more new planes than anybody else. They're telling you what they value, mm. and yet people still sometimes say, "Oh, Jay, I'm not, you know, I'm never flying Ryanair again." They did, and I say, "Well, what do you, do you Expect they don't value it. So, mm. and if you value it, don't fly Ryanair, fly fly with somebody else." So, I I, I for me, going right back, wheeling right back into the gallery. What we, I need to understand is, is that what somebody values in photography, for example, because what people value in photography is different from what they value in an oil painting, mm. right? If, 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 if I'm buying an oil painting, I'm, I'm, I'm going to want to know that the painter is tapping back into the history of oil painting. I want to know that this guy is painting with oils in a way that at least has some reference to the way that, you know, uh, da vinci painted Mm. or that you know now if i if 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 i'm trying to sell somebody something in photography the, the 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 value and the points of reference for value are very different
0: yeah it's funny you should say that because as you talk about the oil painting i'm thinking i know there's people out there who will buy oil paintings because it gives them bragging rights about yeah they can afford this expensive yes. painting and it's really got nothing to do with the subject matter of the painting and and i know as a, a a client of mine I, I was asking him did he ever buy photographs and he would said that he'd spent you know decent money on this photograph and i said why what was it about the photograph and he said it was a place that meant a lot to he to him and his wife Yes, and that's what it was. It wasn't that the photograph in itself was exceptionally, from a technical yes. perspective, excellent. It wasn't the best photograph ever. That's and right. So it is amazing, and you'll see people who will sell photographs, literally millions. Some people will make, and, and you look at the photograph, and you're kind of going to go, "It's a potato, nothing else. It's yes. a potato." Yeah. You know, it's so I am fascinated by this this concept of value, like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. How do you then bring that into branding? Where do you start and where, where do you go so that people get it? Bef- almost they're primed
1: for that conversation. Well, I mean, my definition of, of brand is is very s- simple, again. Uh, and it's, it's it's simple because it reflects uh, the my understanding of what's happening in any transaction. Is that you have two people, a buyer and a seller. And the job of, of, of the if you like, of the business is to establish a relationship between the two, is to confirm that the person who has something to buy wants to be in a relationship with the person who has something to sell. And my understanding of brand is is that brand reflects that relationship. Now it isn't the relationship, it simply reflects it. So what does that mean is is that let's let's take a a kind of a, a very common or simple relationship, the relationship of marriage. Everybody's marriage is different without a doubt okay nobody has the same marriage as somebody else however we all broadly understand that if you were to tell somebody i am married to somebody else we'd have an understanding broadly of what that means Mm. understanding that one person might have an open marriage one person might have a a, you know a very traditional marriage etc but by and large we'd understand both civilly socially legally etc that there are certain things we can assume Mm. reasonably about that relationship now how would I know that two people were in such a relationship? Well, I might know it because they wear a wedding ring or a marriage ring on their on their fingers. I might know that they have children in, co- in common who happen to share the same surname. I might know it because they share the same address or they have a joint bank account. There's a whole range of ways in which I might know that would reflect that they are in a relationship called a marriage. So. A brand is a little bit like that in the sense that it reflects the relationship between two people, usually a commercial relationship, but but a, a, a point of fact, it could be uh, a relationship for, between a political party and a voter, for example, or a not-for-profit and a, and a supporter, um, or or simply a member of a club, for example, somebody who is part of a, a Harley uh, club, for example. But the, the brand reflects the relationship, it isn't the relationship. So how would I know, for example, that there was a, a Harley riders group, a hog group? Well, there would be something representing it. I'd see the Harley Davidson logo somewhere. Now the Harley Davidson logo isn't the group. It just simply tells me there's a group of guys who get together, get on their bikes and, and head off into the sunset. And they see themselves as part of that relationship. So for for me, the the, the brand reflects that relationship. So back to value, how would you reflect the the value that's going to be exchanged in the relationship? Well, the first thing is that you would ensure that the way in which you represent yourself in the marketplace reflects what you value. So it tells the customer. So in the Island Bridge context, in my business, I've no interest in working with clients who don't value the relationship they have with their customers. So one of the things you'll find us talking about on the Island Bridge website is how we value customers and how our customers value their customers, right? So it won't take you too long to, to, to read uh, a, 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 an article about Island Bridge, a, a, a blog post, wherever, to, to understand is that if you don't value your relationship with customers, well, then you're wasting your time talking to Island Bridge. There's there's other people who will do a a really good job helping you develop your brand. So, branding is really about, for me, it's about reflecting the relationship that you propose to have with your buyer um, and enabling them to, to identify that you are somebody who shares values around what is to be exchanged and this is really important is that it doesn't mean you share your values about you know about marriage or about uh, voting or about sustainability necessarily mm. it's that you share values around you know the 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 photography, that you share values around the branding, you share values around the IT services you offer. Whatever it is, is that the values that are crucial to that exchange and critical to that exchange.
0: How does that play into personal branding then? Because what I'm hearing is, on one level, it's like branding acts like a shortcut. It helps to cut through a lot of noise and simplified yeah. things that people can grasp at a subconscious level. Like you said, you know, it's, it's when you say I'm married, that means something. And therefore it's a label that has a lot of understanding that comes with it. That's what I'm hearing that branding is about. Yes. How does that play into uh, personal branding then? Because that's not something people ever talked about 20 years ago. It's sure. something that's much more modern, and I'm. You kind of. I wonder sometimes. Well, is that just people with too much time on their hands? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just get on with life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working well, on my personal <laughs> brand. That's. It's people who are very conscious about it, and they'll dress in a certain way because somewhere they read that if you want to build your personal brand, then you need some way of. Being recognised, and I'm not so sure that fits with your definition. Like, you'll see some people will wear a a brooch, or a, or a, or a, um, there was one Labour MP in the UK and he used to always wear a, I think it was a rose in his pocket, and he would be known for that, or some people might wear uh, a silk tie or, you know, a three piece suit. Talk to me about that because I'm not so sure I fully subscribe to it or understand it even.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, to, to some extent, uh, like, like many of the, uh, the new industries or, or, or new, <laughs> new, new headings, uh, I mean, personal branding has been going on forever um, in, in, insofar as if, if we think about personal branding in the business context, because, you know, to a large extent, you know, when, when, when you sat down to write your CV 30, 40 years ago, whether you liked it or not, you were involved in personal branding. You were were saying, here is what I, as an individual, will contribute to your organization if you hire me. This is is what I will bring. Mm. And the relationship that you will have with me, you'll give me this and I'll give you that. So to a large extent, there is nothing new in that. I think what is new is, is, I suppose, the the realization is, is that everything you say and everything you don't say matters when you're building a relationship. So I think what has happened and it's, I suppose as as there has been a greater uh, uh, focus in in general, in society, in how we present ourselves and how we represent ourselves. um, And I mean, you could argue in many respects, it's become unhealthy because there's so much of a focus on looking in the mirror and saying, what do people see when they see me? that becomes unhealthy at a certain point, I believe. Mm. Um, so when, when I consider personal branding, I don't really distinguish between personal branding and professional branding in, in or company branding or organizational branding because to a large extent, it's really about reflecting the relationship that you propose to have with somebody else, uh, usually in the commercial uh, in, in the commercial context. And when we talk about building the Paul Lanigan personal brand or the Jared Tanum personal brand. It's really about just considering what is it that I need to reflect? What value do I need to represent or, or offer into the marketplace that is going to be viable or, 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 or uh, in demand? Um, so like 20, 30 years ago, it would have seemed pretentious to put your photograph on a CV, Mm. for example, um, or to, to have said too much about your, your, your personal life, your, your hobbies or whatever it Mm. might be, unless they related directly (laughs) to, you know, um, but a, a, a a friend of mine, her, 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 son is, is, is entering into the workplace for the first time. He's 16, 17 and he's putting together a CV. And uh, he's looking for work in garden centers. And this guy is really keen on plant growing plants at home. His, his bedroom at home is full of, it's like a little hothouse, right? And, and he was not inclined to put that information into his CV. And I said, that's absolutely vital. If I'm the owner of a, a garden center, I absolutely want... A young fella who is not necessarily going to be overly qualified he's not going to have a particular experience that he's going to be able to immediately i'm not going to let him loose on 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 the prize uh plants i'm growing but what i am certainly going to do is i'm going to trust him to care about what, what 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 we're doing so it's really important if you look at it through the personal branding point of view, it's really important to, to, to understand is that you know, you're know you always representing yourself uh, when you go out into the marketplace, whether you like it or not, you're, you're representing yourself and you're proposing to offer value to somebody else. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's not even a question of putting, you know, commercial value on the value. It's sometimes it's that people won't accept your help. So even if you just look at it, say for example, as you're looking to build your personal brand because you want to contribute more to the, you know, to, 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 to fixing homelessness, you may need to, to look at some of the things that you're representing in the, in, 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 in the world to ask, you know, is this gonna get in the way of my helping to fix this problem? Mm. So say for example, I guess poor Michael D. Uh, was outed, you know, as a landlord in in, 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 in Galway.
0: People listening to this who will not have a clue who Michael D. is.
1: OK, sorry. Michael D. is, is, is our president. Sorry. And of course, in the typical uh, irreverent Irish way, Michael D. Higgins is our uh, very much loved and uh, revered uh, president. And he has he's a, a socialist president, I think it's fair to say. And he's a guy who has a very strong view on. Landlords and tenants, and on that whole unfairness that often is found in the uh, in the property market, and it, 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 he was outed a few um, uh, a couple of years ago as owning a a, a, a a property that he was leasing to to students. Now there was no suggestion that he wasn't a good landlord, but there was a degree to which his personal brand mm. wasn't wasn't uh, reflecting. The value he wanted to add to a conversation so here's
0: the crux here's where, here's where i'm coming to on this to me this is really about authenticity in that that your personal brand should be who you are not who you want to well maybe I'm, I'm saying that now and i'm not quite sure but like some what i see some people do is like who do i need to be and therefore they're kind of stepping outside who they are that that guy who had the plans in the room that's he loves plans let the world know that. Yes. Um, and, and so, I'm trying to, because I often struggle with this whole authenticity thing. People, you know, the, it's, it's, it's one of those things you hear a lot about, be authentic, be authentic. And I'm not convinced about that either, because let's say you're an asshole. Well, does people want you to be authentic to that all the time? Or do they want a version of you which is easy for them to consume? Which then begs the question, is that really or is it a version of you and if that's okay then is that the brand you
1: well I mean in many ways, if you're an asshole and the transaction or the the the, the exchange that you're 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 looking for doesn't value assholeness, well then you got to go looking somewhere else for the for the exchange. So, to some extent, and I mean, I suppose this comes back to again my own understanding of brand, is that when I talk about the brand reflecting the relationship, it's a two-way relationship. It has to work for me, and it has to work for you. If we're going to exchange something, it has to work for us both. So, if 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 you know, I mean, there are certain environments, and for example, the, the legal. If I'm your legal representative, you may want me to be something of an asshole on your behalf right (laughs) Um, so it it becomes appropriate now does that mean kind of gratuitous assholeness no it doesn't but but i I guess it's about understanding that sometimes we we do need to i guess tailor or 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 adapt what we do and how we do it Mm. to the situation and Coming back to, to to authenticity, I think authentic, authenticity is, is is both a kind of reflection of who we are, and I think also who we are, aspire to be. So, in in the sense that, simply because I've told lies in the ba- in the past, it doesn't make me a liar now in in a way if 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 i want if i want if I aspire to be somebody who tells the truth who is who doesn't tell lies and I commit myself to that it's fair of me to represent myself to the next person I'm meeting with as somebody who is committed to the truth of what I'm about to tell you mm. to the value of what I'm about to bring so I think in many respects authenticity is more about being true to to what you are bringing to the table. Mm and then asking yourself what does the other person need to see and hear to be reassured that i'm bringing that value and that they'll get that value in return for whatever they're asking whatever the the price is on it
0: it's like do you believe it too or are you being a hypocrite i think it probably comes down exactly exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. in what respect because i want to talk to about the element of storytelling in brand building and how you achieve that. And also, because branding is about simplification, how do you decide on what to
1: exclude from that
0: story? <laughs>
1: well, well, I, I, I think uh, in terms of story, what you've got is you, you've got this notion of narrative that there, there is in any story an arc that effectively describes before, during and after. In other words, well, yeah. usually in story, there's an element of, there's a problem to be solved, right? There's a, that the hero is in a, a, a dark spot. Then you have the action that took place, that something happened during which the hero tried to fix the problem. Ooh. And then there was a result, an outcome, a happily ever after or whatever whatever that might be. So there's usually a narrative uh streak or, or, or arc running through that, where the, the problem that needs to be fixed is, is usually fixed by a value, by, by the value of steadfastness or courage or truth or whatever it might be. So what do you leave in and what do you take away is that you only leave in those things which are concerned with courage or truth. And you leave out the rest. That's fascinating. So, so great story, great storytellers. While they often seem to add a lot of extraneous detail, they're not really. The detail is just telling you additional things. about. So you talked about the Labour MP who wore the rose. Let's look at the other MP in, 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 in the British context, uh, Boris. And Boris's narrative is, you know, I am the, I, I, I'm the patriotic clown, the larger than life, patriotic clown who, you know, will, will get the English spirit, you know, I'll, I'll bring it, I'll bring it to Brexit, I'll bring it to COVID, I'll bring it to, you know. So he he's very skillful, you know, I, I, I expect that if he brushes his hair in the morning, he then... Tousles it before he goes out so he mightn't even brush it but if he forgets himself some morning and brushes his hair before he goes out the door he unbrushes it right that's because that's his narrative his whole narrative is is that i'm the the bright uh but idiotic but you know and there's a whole you know there's an element of the buffoon about why would you want to do that though? why would
0: you want to brand yourself as an idiotic bumbling buffoon when you're clearly, the role
1: requires you to be not that. Because look at the mess that the experts got us into.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> and remember cool. that plays. Remember that plays out beautifully. Where in the COVID environment, well, the, uh, the scientists have told us all the things we can't do. The experts are telling us that we are now restrained and we cannot go free. So what do you need? You need the anti-expert. And Boris <laughs> loves to play Loves to play the anti-expert. Yeah.
0: You know, I never looked at it that way. Because <laughs> you, can't, you can't bring those two together. You can, if you cannot be perceived as the expert, you're not going to get tarnished with the negatives that come with, well, the negatives have got it wrong time and time and time again. Exactly. So, so-called yeah. experts. And wow
1: exactly and the legalistic people and the people who are you know parsing every sentence and stuff he's no time for that he's uh it's it's uh you know, he out his, <laughs> <laughs> he just puffs out his uh his chest and uh, and plays the clown
0: yeah
1: and uh and remember he has the he, he's another guy who loved to play the, the clown as well Churchill um, yeah also like to play that uh, that clown in, in, in a previous environment, yeah. you know? Okay, so so
0: let's stick with Boris, because there's something here I want to get your brand perspective on this. Is, yeah, we all know Boris with the hair and, and, and the approach and the, the kind of not okayness, right? If you look at the psychology of that, very powerful. But when the UK elections came around, what is it? Maybe 12 months ago now, nine months ago, 12 months ago he got his hair cut, in, in the final yeah. weeks, he got his hair cut in style. Now, I'm not, it wasn't Vidal soon, but like, he combed his hair, he brushed his hair in the morning. Yes. Where is, that, is Is that like, we're, we're stepping into a new place here?
1: Yeah, and also, I, I suspect, I hadn't thought about it, but I suspect it, 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 there may be an element also of, anybody who has suspicions that I'm not fit for office, uh, you know, I, I, I can be briefly statesman like, you know, mm. in other words, you know, as you go into the, the polling booth, you can trust that, you know, the, the picture in your mind is a little less buffoonish, a little less uh, chaotic. Look, I, I, I need to think this through uh, a, a, little, a, a little further, but I suspect there's an element of that. Yeah. There's a sort of a, a finessing yeah. of, the, of the picture. Yeah.
0: Trump, Trump was a master of that. As much as I, yes. I, I, I detest him at an individual level, he, he, he was a master of, not so much the buffoonery, it was different, but how he positioned himself as, yes. I'm not those swamp dwellers, even though he was enriching his friends and all of that stuff went on. But he actually called it out himself. I remember there was one scene where he said, you know, it's easy to look statesman like, you just do this. And he, you know, he, he looked yes. all serious. And I think he was almost mocking them. To an extent, yeah, yeah. but I, I, I'd never considered that it was actually, there's, there's actually an element, of, I, I don't want to use genius and Trump in the same sentence, but there was <laughs> an element of competency there for sure in terms of yes. how what story he was telling that yes. resonated with the individual lives of those who were going to vote for him and who would walk through walls to vote for him. And we do it again in the morning.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah,
0: it is fascinating. I guess we can learn all about brands by just looking around us and paying attention to to what's going on. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And Look, I I suppose my concern as a kind of a branding professional is is that branding has become kind of synonymous in in, in many people's minds with kind of superficiality, putting on a veneer in order to, you know, sell fools gold. You know, it's shiny, it's bright, whatever. For me, you know, branding is 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 more like engineering in the sense that it's about understanding what problem needs to be fixed by your what what problem your customers looking for you to fix, understanding what needs to happen for you to fix that problem, and then making sure that you represent everything you do in a way that shows your competency yeah. to to to, uh, to fix that problem. My
0: other big takeaway from this, Jared, is, is, well, it's about values. For example, if my customers want reliability, my brand really has to reflect reliability. If my brand, my customers need someone who's courageous and who's going to get the job done, that, it's the values that my brand communicates. It's not logos. Uh, it's not necessarily our history, unless that history plays into a... a a story of courage or reliability or or whatever that value is would that be fair yes
1: no i think that's fair to say and i think one of the things that we we often do is we uh we underestimate or or ignore or, or or neglect the values that are actually at play in a Particular transaction. So we assume that what people are looking for is formality or uh, or integrity, or and and those are not the values they're seeking. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't mean that you can dismiss them, but they're not the, the selling points. I suppose they're not the the reason somebody uh, will buy from you. Um, and I've seen that um, kind of time and time again. We did a project many years ago now for a uh, a, a a business that was selling into the the property market. And uh, they were very successfully uh, providing infrastructure into, into buildings. And they assumed that the more people who knew who they were, the more successful they would be. So they were planning to go into the business papers with you know advertising pr profiles a whole lot of other things when we went out and talked to a lot of our customers one of the things that uh, their, their their client said invariably was they valued in our in our client their low key low profile keeping their head down getting on and doing the business and not trumpeting it from the rooftops so we went back to them and said Cancel the the the, the, the full-page ads. Cancel this. You you've got to take a different approach to brand building because your clients do not value seeing your faces all over the the, the popular press. Because what that will raise in their minds is, in the in the reader's mind is is that you know are these guys too expensive? Mm-hmm. Are these guys <laughs> yeah. uh, are these guys bad value? Yeah,
0: there's also an element commercially- I think of you're our secret sauce and I don't wanna share that with anybody yes.
1: else. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think that was part of it too. Yeah. So, so so, simply by asking their customers what they valued, we learned very quickly that something that our client thought the customer valued, it wasn't even that they didn't value it, they devalued it. They, As far as they were concerned, the last thing they wanted to see was our customer in high profile mm. That's and about, our yeah. that client, 10 years later, is still not a household name. And that's by design. Mm. And yet, if you were to look at it through the kind of the conventional branding terms, you'd say, Island Bridge, you know, how many column inches did you uh, secure? Or how many? <laughs> and what we'd say, well, never mind the column inches. look how many contracts our client won yeah. as a result of keeping a low profile yeah. and, and building the relationship with their customers and their market in a different yeah. way.
0: Top, that's a topic for another day, measuring the wrong thing. It is. It really
1: is. Yes. Wow, people, people
0: yeah. do it all the time. I'm sure I do it myself all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating, Jared. i got a couple of quick questions for you before I let you go. Um, your house is burning down, your family are safe, uh, your, your, your phone is safe, <laughs> <laughs> and you have time to run back in and grab one p- personal possession. What would it be and why?
1: Wow. Uh, well, funny enough, I, I, on, on a personal level, I've been going through a, a, a sort of a series over the last ten years now of, uh, of of kind of letting things go, physical things go. You know, sorting through old, old photographs and, uh, uh, and 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 whatnot. And I struggle to think of any one thing that a physical thing, material item, not in the sense that you know I, I, I'm surrounded by. Comfort and material items, but I've—I really would struggle to think of any one mm. thing I own or have around me that I would hang on to. If I did, it, you know, it's—it's it's hard to say because. Yeah, I, I, look, I, 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 sorry to cop no, out. On that it's one, fine. I, By I, the I, way, <laughs> it's
0: probably the most common answer, and it's surprisingly—it's—it's. Yeah. It's, I, I think it speaks to the fact that most people realise that. Almost everything they have is replaceable the The yep. only exceptions you'll ever hear to that question are I had one recently, and it was uh my father's ashes, for example yes well, that's understandable yes. or it may be so and it's typically something maybe somebody gifted them that can never be replaced that yes. they can't walk down to High street and, and, and replace it uh, so yes. it's, it, that is interesting um, two 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 very quick questions then is. What's brand-jured,
1: if you were to put it in a sentence? Not Island Bridge. Sure. Well, um, I, I have, of course, given that thought uh, over over the years, uh, um, almost inevitably. Look, I, I, I guess it, it, it's about maybe leaving any interaction or exchange and the other person's in a better place I suppose mm. and, and and I don't I don't necessarily mean that in the big way the big way is kind of easier in some ways if somebody's in real trouble <laughs> it's easy mm. easy enough to if somebody's life needs saving and you could jump in and save them mm. you do it it's more on the kind of the everyday stuff mm. it's 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 about understanding that uh, and I'm going to quote uh, uh, Gandhi who says something like what you do may not be important but it's important you do it well and what I take that to mean is is that in some respects it really doesn't matter if if, if somebody needs a a decent cup of tea from me right at that moment that I I make him a decent cup of tea and then after they've had the tea they feel better or they're better off in some way so it's it's in it's it's that little sort of yeah, but, th- but yeah, those, Joe, 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 Joe. those things
0: are the butterfly wings. They're the really, the, yeah. they're the important things. Yeah. And question I have to ask, but I, I think you've kind of answered it, is that, you know, when you shuffle off this mortal coil, how would you like to be remembered?
1: Well, you know, I, I suppose, I, I was struck a, a couple of years ago, uh, we lost um, Gayburn, oh. uh who is a... A legendary TV presenter for those of us outside the, Ireland's, uh, Johnny uh, the, the Ireland, Ireland's Johnny Carson. The Ireland's Johnny Carson, and uh, uh, like he, he was a, a a giant of of broadcasting um, and TV and radio. But what what struck me uh, after he 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 passed, and he passed kind of at a, at a difficult time, in the sense or a difficult time for his family, clearly, but a difficult time for us as a country as well. What struck me immediately afterwards was was that. Uh, All of the people who came out, big, small people who had met him once, who had, you know, and the number of stories that were told of the little differences he'd made. Now, I didn't particularly like him as a presenter. I found him often quite supercilious, condescending, you know, he often struck me as cold. Mm -hmm. um, And it appears he was none of these things, but yeah, so... The most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is, is that you know when, when you when you finish. The people who you've interacted with, whoever they are, you know, the, the, and more the small people than the big people. The 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 the, the you know the family, the friends, the the, the, the you know the people who came to you looking for a job, or and even if you couldn't give them a job, how did you deal with them? You know, that's mm-hmm. true. That, that that's the most important. Yeah. Did you just dodge the question?
0: Um, you told me about Game sure Is that what you're saying? Is that are, well, not not saying not. Is that's how you like to be remembered? As just having made an impact on those you meet?
1: Yeah, yeah. And my, and, and my own dad uh, passed about a year and a half ago. And uh, again, when 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 we met people, uh, this was before the pandemic, so we, we had the the opportunity to celebrate his life. And he was 97, almost 98, and that's what struck me was the number of people who i didn't know mm. who came to me after uh, the, the 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 funeral at the funeral itself and and, and subsequently and said i knew your dad and this is what he did and mm. it might have been a, a small a small little thing mm. but he, he was doing that and he was doing it all his life so you know i'd like to i'd like to 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 to, to know that mm. you know and There's, there's things certainly in the earlier part of my life that I'm not proud of, I'm ashamed of. Um, and I've worked, you know, hard for the last 20, 25, 30 years now to make sure that I can look back without regrets. Mm -hmm. And that when I'm, when I've left the people who come forward to say, I knew your dad, I knew your brother, I knew your employer, you know, I knew your brand guy will have something. To say, not so much that they say it because I won't hear it, <laughs> but 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 in a way that the people the yeah. people who, who who I matter to yeah, yeah. will hear it yeah. and 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 be proud of the fact that I was their dad or their yeah. their son or their brother or yeah. whatever you know.
0: That seems like a great place to leave it, Gerard. Thank you so much okay. for
1: being my guest today. Thanks very much, Paul. Lovely to be along.